Mackling McGarry McNabb, the first day of summer, the longest day of the year. 26 degrees, six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Man, it was hot yesterday. It was like a furnace. I cannot believe we did not get thunderstorms last night. I really can't. It really felt as though they were in the offing. I, I put my patio cushions away. I tied down the umbrella to make sure that it was like, I did all the things you're supposed to do to prepare for the storm, Loren, and nothing. It felt like one of those scenes where you, you know, you were about to do a dance to bring on the rain because it was so hot and so heavy. And when the wind slapped you in the face, it was just like getting poked with like a hot fire poker because there was nothing. There was no room for relief. And so I think many of us, not just one of the storms, because you perhaps like to watch them. I mean, you don't want the damage and all the rest, but you like a good thunderstorm. But it really felt like we need this now. And so we're going to talk to uh, a meteorologist with Weather Logics just after eight. He's joined us often just to talk about what he sees in the forecast. But he's also a storm chaser. And I know he was out the last couple of nights, you know, tracking storms in different areas, Brandon and Carmen, because the the models were all there. Yeah. And then nothing. And uh, like we need that we need a rain. But I, I I like I like the hot summer. I'm not complaining. I just feel like there needs to be a bit of relief somewhere. Yeah, and just looking at the radar, it looks like the, there was something that just, the storm shield, something just missed us to the northwest, and now it, it's north of the city, and there's a lot of stuff coming up from the south. So I know, Greg, you've got a golf tournament today. I'm hoping to go golfing as well, so I'll be keeping a close eye on on that radar. And just for some uh, perspective as well, our friend uh, Sam Stevens down at Peggy at 99.1 reminded us yesterday June 20th, 2023, 34 degrees, and January 30, 2023, minus 30 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw Julie uh, Julie Buckingham captured uh, in our studio. We have a big monitor which contains a bunch of information, including the temperature, and she, she snapped a shot of that when it said 35 or 36 yesterday. Wow. And she said, this is to remind me in January when I'm complaining about the cold. <laughs> So, did either of you have the hankering to go to Stonehenge and uh, dance around Stonehenge? For the summer solstice? Today? Yeah, I think that's what the pagans do on a day like today. No, I I have had the good fortune of having visited Stonehenge, and I will say it is... I said sarcasm in your voice. It's neat for like five seconds. You're like, oh, how did they put up all these huge rocks like all this time ago? I get it. And then it's like, and... Now what? And now what? Is there popcorn? Like, is there a food truck nearby? I can <laughs> I pick up some dog? pizza or something that. So, uh, yeah, if, you, if that's a thing for you, have, a, have at her. But uh, no, no desire to get there. And an interesting uh, perspective from producer Jeff Fortier, who made an observation that had the two of you shaking your heads, <laughs> at least as it pertains to the first day of summer. Fortier, what are you like about it? I said that we're over the hump and the days are going to get a little bit shorter now. <laughs> Starting from well, tomorrow, because I think today's the longest, uh, or the shortest, no, longest day. Longest day, shortest night time. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, the sun coming down a little bit earlier. Oh, we were booing him. Well, Greg and I were booing him. And then Brett said, we're yeah, vampires. Brett's got my we back. Like the, yes. No, I like the, I like the long nights. I love the sounds on the street right now as the kids count down the days, right, to school being almost over and, I think I can speak for parents everywhere. You've just given up. And you're like, I don't know. Can I have this for supper? I don't care. Like, <laughs> What's for supper? Whatever's in the fridge, yeah. whatever's in the what cupboard. What you eat tonight? Chips. Great. Help Go to yourself. Bed. 
<laughs> can we use these water balloons? Sure. We're all wet. Great. Whatever How late can we want. stay up? I don't even know. Like, I, I can't even imagine being a teacher right now with this heat and so many schools still oh, without no air kidding. conditioning and the kids are just feral. And you're like, if I, you know, I just, the hotter it gets, the more everyone gets a little bit, you know, antsy and wants to do things. And teachers must be just, you know, if parents have collectively given up, teachers got, weigh in. I know you're working hard. There's still assignments in our school, still things that gosh. need to get done. But my goodness. Let's just keep busy work because, those you know, those report cards have been filled out already. One of the boys asked me yesterday, do we have any milk? Uh, nope. <laughs> find, out, find something else nope summer's here for dad too right <laughs> how could the milkman run out of milk <laughs> happens sometimes we've got bomber tickets to give away for tomorrow night's game with the bc lions in town, inspired by some news that actually came from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers yesterday. The world's largest inflatable obstacle course, the Monster, is coming to IG Field August 4th to the 7th with over 40 obstacles spanning 300 meters. This event promises to be an exciting and fun-filled day out for kids and adults alike. Is it just like a big bouncy castle type run around and you can bang off the walls and yeah. the ground? Yeah. It looks I, like that. I think a bouncy castle, which it would be, not the original theme park type game but it'd be i feel like it'd be close it's still good times oh yeah and the obstacle course and and uh some of the different things that you can do with inflatables now you can rent these big inflatables for your backyard you know it's not just uh it's not just a 10 by 10 they got giant ones now that even have a water slide <laughs> component built into them so they're pretty cool yeah this one they can accommodate up to 380 guests per hour has 100 and 100 challengers on the obstacle course at a time and it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to complete so yeah gravity defying slides towering inflatable walls mind bending mazes this sounds Fun. So again, that's August 4th to the 7th. But the question we have for you then this morning is what's kind of like a, a wacky, zany game or activity that you'd like to try or maybe have tried? Like, have you ever run around in those giant bubbles? Uh, I think they actually play like like te- like team games in those things where you're running into each other or maybe one of those sumo fights where you put on those goofy suits. Or have you, I've, I've always wanted to try the rodeo thing at the bar, but I feel like I would fall off and break my back. Like the mechanical bull? Yeah, the mechanical bull. There you go. <laughs> I've seen people bash their heads on those oh, things. Oh, too many concussions. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, I'm just, I've always been curious. Uh, 204-780-6868. Let's go around the horn here. Loren, why don't uh, we start with you? Well, my thing was the sumo. I said this morning, I just want to put a sumo suit on, like one of those big inflatable sumo suits. Brett would be on the opposite end. I would run at you as hard as I could. And then at some point, I really just want to give you the flying elbow. I don't know why I'm picking on you for this. It just, you're, you're into wrestling and I feel like you would appreciate oh, yeah. the move. Yeah. And then, you know, knowing that you wouldn't get hurt, like there's something kind of fun about that, just bouncing around in those things. I think they're probably, like I would want my own. I don't know if you go to rent those things, it's like the <laughs> idea of all the different people that have worn them and sweated in them. I've done it, and it was a rented one, and it's pretty gross. <laughs> but it's also, also pretty fun. It's also pretty fun. Though. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you have to put all that stuff, just put it aside, right? Yeah, just, just forget about it. Just not think about that part of it. 
Uh, Jeff Forte and Master Control, what about you? Water jetpack. Have you ever seen those water <laughs> jetpacks? <laughs> that, that, they're like attached to like, what is it, a ski-doo? Is that what they're called? Mm-hmm. But it has like a uh, flexible pipe that goes up to it and you just, you, you kind of fly around, I don't know, just a few meters up in the air. But uh, I've seen some people do like a straight up nose dive by accident right back in the water. But it just looks like so much fun. And uh, being up in the air would just be a lot of fun. Yeah, and that, that, might, that might be the, one of the closest things we have to flying other than a, sure. like a hang glide or one of those wing suits that you can get. Um, but we're, that's a thrill-seeking thing. We're looking for the, the, what you just said, Forte, is great. Um, Sarah McCarthy, you just mentioned the sumo suit, but yeah. is there something you'd like to try? Something I'd like to try. They also, because they had these games at my high school graduation. They rented a whole bunch of them, but we like ran out of time and couldn't do all of them, so I picked the sumo, of course. And uh, But the one I didn't get to do was this inflatable gladiator jousting game. So you're on top of these like inflatable pedestals and then you put a helmet on and then you grab these like soft sword looking things and you try and push your partner off across from you and that looked really fun as well and just the slow falls you would see you fall into into like a bouncy mat yeah Yeah, it's a soft fall (laughs) i think i've done that Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I've done something like that. I seem to remember having like yeah. a big sort of uh, inflatable or this big soft mm-hmm. uh, three-foot thing. You put both of your yeah. hands in, Yeah. but I have terrible balance. So I took one <laughs> hit and down I went. So I sucked at that. I'm like, wow, I gave that. At least that. you tried it. I tried. Mackling, what about you? So you never did the mechanical bull at Mundo Banana in Mazatlan, <laughs> Brett McGarry? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> like this is a strange combination a mechanical bull at a dance club in Mazatlan, Mexico. Okay, looks like fun. Um so you remember American Gladiators? Oh yeah. There actually is a tremendous documentary series on the American Gladiators right now and and some of these athletes are dealing with some serious long-term after effects of their involvement in this TV show, but back in its heyday back in the mid 90s uh, there was alcohol involved in this conversation, I admit. Uh, John, my friend John and I came up with this concept for the American Gladiators restaurant. Mm. And in order to get to your table, <laughs> you would have to do the American Gladiators course. Yeah. And if you couldn't get past the Gladiators, you couldn't eat at our restaurant. <laughs> and so it would be complete with all these different things. Modified, of course, because it could only be so large. But we came down, like, got it down to, you know, which of the gladiators would do what, which would be a host, who would be our servers, all these different things that you'd be able to do. And then if you got up to go to the washroom, once again, you would have to do <laughs> one of the American gladiators. In, in interactive things, and uh, if you didn't tip enough, you had to be careful because uh, Edge or whatever his name would come and get you. Uh, all these different. Anyway, American Gladiator Restaurant does not exist, but it TM, should. TM, patent pending, whatever you have to say to yeah, make TM, sure no one's. Trademark. Hey, if they could have the mid- medieval, what is it, the medieval times yeah. with yes. horses yeah. and jousting and chicken. I love that. You place. can have Gladiator Nights. Mm-hmm. And let's get to Cam. Portress, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Um, yeah, I've done uh, a high-speed obstacle course uh, in a vehicle. Um, this was a number of years ago. Uh, it was on a television show. Uh, I won't go into any more specifics, but it was something else. We've seen the video, Cam. Have you? Can, I don't know. Oh, yes. Is this not public knowledge, it. Canada's worst driver? That's you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's public knowledge, but I don't like to acknowledge it. <laughs> well, you just did. <laughs> just have to Google it. Yeah, I was just watching some videos of it the other day with your your clean-shaven yeah. face. 
Yeah. Your, yeah, bu- yeah, your buddy was hilarious in that. He's like, dude, you can't, you got to like go faster. You're doing 30 and a 50. (laughs) He nominated me and then I, yeah, but it was, you know what? It was a heck of a lot of fun. Why do you change lanes all the time? (laughs) Okay. You know, some, uh, Greg, some things are for television. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. We're asking this morning, which Wacky game or activity would you like to try inspired by the fact that the monster is coming to IG Field in August, the world's biggest inflatable obstacle course. It looks super fun. And Oliver says he'd like to try the game show Wipeout, which uh, it's that obstacle course where you, you basically get beat up. You have to make it through various uh, obstacles without getting like pushed off into a into a fiery pit or something like that. Inspired by Japanese game shows which look hilarious. They even had a reality show 10 years ago called I Survived a Japanese Game yeah. Show. Oh, oh, I can't think I remember that. Yeah. And I, I loved watching that when they would do the dub over yes. in English. Was it on TBS or it was something? On Spike. Oh, it was Spike. Called, the, the, the original show was Takeshi's Castle and the Spike version was Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. <laughs> right. And uh, that actually inspired it. That's eventually what brought Wipeout to life was the popularity of that show. I want to say that former Blue Bomber kicker Troy Westwood actually went on Wipeout. Yeah? I think so. Our listeners will know. 204-780-6868. And T-Roy, if you're listening this morning, were you you on Wipeout? I feel like you were. Tech listener just said, fun fact, Troy Westwood was on Wipeout. Dan, check out Dan, the Earl of Eli's text, Brett, because this looks right up your alley. You have to Google, Google it. The Holy Moly Mini Putt course is something I have always wanted to try. <laughs> the wife and I watch every summer when a new season comes on. I sit in front of the TV and say what I would do differently as each golfer plays their hole. I would love to dodge obstacles while trying to putt a ball around the course. It's a bucket list item that will never come true, he thinks, but it would be awesome. Go look at the pictures. It like Each room is really crazy set up with <laughs> couches or chairs or a bed or a car. And then I think there are like things thrown at you or whatnot to try to get the ball in the hole. I have never heard of this. Yeah, I'm looking at a poster here with uh, uh, Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors. He's also an excellent golfer. And uh, then a bunch of the Muppets. And it says, it's not easy being on the green. (laughs) 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 And it says, holy moly, four, as in four, ever. And apparently this is on ABC. I've never heard never, of this. I have never heard of it. This looks incredible. It's in it, And I think it's in Australia. Is that where you'd find it? That's pretty neat. There's another thing that I thought of you uh, when they released it, Brett. Something they were doing at Petco Park in San Diego over the winter. Uh, it, what's that What's that uh, target golf place in Las Vegas? Top Golf. Top Golf. They were setting up a, a similar type course at Petco Oh. Park where they would set up different tee boxes around the stadium, okay, and then use the field with different targets for you to hit. Oh, fun! So basically, stadium golf, but in <laughs> not the way that the TPC Sawgrass talks about stadium golf and the idea of setting up the the crowds around the greens, where you actually would walk around Petco Park and different eighteen different holes quote unquote, and and you'd hit your ball off these different elevations at Petco. It sounded like a lot of fun. That does sound like a lot of fun. This golf, this holy moly, by the way, is actually filmed in Santa Clarita where on the set that was previously used for Wipeout. Oh. Like it's some sort of connection there. Santa Clarita. Okay. So it's a California thing. All right. 
Look at that. I'll have to see if that's available on Disney Plus. If it's an ABC product, I uh, might be able to watch that on Disney Plus. And by the way, what's that? Um, what is it? Crashed Ice? Yeah, yes. Crashed Ice. Yes. What's that again? That's uh, basically speed skating on a on, on, hills. A, on a decliner, an incline, but you're going downhill. I, I've said we need to set that up at IG Field. Apparently, they've looked at it. It's way too expensive. Ah. But they did it. They did it at Commonwealth Stadium, I think, and they've done it in Minneapolis, Ottawa. They did St. it St. Paul. They've done it in uh, Quebec City. You know, it where you've got some natural. No, yeah. But they build it. They build. They'll build oh, it yeah. in your downtown. They'll come with like the the structures, and it's like a roller coaster on ice, but with your skates on. Yeah, and you try and go as fast as you can. <laughs> you just don't glide. You actually skate downhill. It's, it's insane. <laughs> I think there are many of us who would like to believe we would know exactly how to respond in an emergency. If you saw someone hurt, for example, someone choking or something on fire. And and so often there's what you should do or should try to do. And then in the case we're going to bring to you now, there's perhaps what you shouldn't do. And so earlier this week, I was driving down the highway with my youngest when I saw a man at the side of the road and on the approach, a truck that had some sort of equipment for ditch or maybe sewer work, I'm not sure. And on top of it, that truck had just hit a power line and there was a flash of light, like an arc of fire. And I pulled over and yelled, should I call 911? And as I'm grabbing my phone and this gentleman says, yes, please, I look over and I see that right next to this truck, there's another worker on the ground and he had just been electrocuted. And I, I don't want to get into any more of the details of where this was or who was involved, but in those moments, it was really clear we couldn't go near him because of the tr- electricity, because of the current in the truck, maybe even in him. And we knew we could be hurt, but we also wanted to help. And so help did come. There was I was on the phone with 911. There was great advice from the paramedics, the other people who showed up and stopped. And the good news is this person eventually started moving and, and crawling towards us, and he's going to live. There are injuries, but he will live. But I wanted to share this today because in the hours after seeing this, I had many conversations in my home and with friends about what to do in this situation, right? Because it could be on the job. It could be a farmer moving a piece of equipment, hitting a hydro line. Uh, It could be at home with a faulty appliance that an electrocution could happen. And Greg, I actually read this morning that the majority of electrocutions actually happen in the home. And so that had me thinking, do any of us really know what we're supposed to do? You might've heard what to do when you're a kid, but when it comes to real action and responding, what are the things we need to yeah, consider? So many of these happen in our home, right? So what do we need to know? What do we need to learn? And how many of us actually have first aid training to step in while waiting for paramedics to arrive? Brenda Preston is Director of Learning at St. John Ambulance here in Manitoba. Brenda, thank you for taking some time with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start with electricity. You just heard Loren's uh, harrowing story here. If, if we know someone has just been electrocuted, like what Loren shared with us, what do you need to consider first? Um, what she did, absolutely safety. Um, not going near that person um, because electricity, especially from overhead lines, can discharge into the ground. So it charges the ground. So you wouldn't even have made it to this person without you getting electrocuted as well. So in this case, the line wasn't down. So I was thinking about the fact the line was still in attack, but you don't know where the charge has gone and where it's going and, and you know, how long that lasts. And so do you also need to consider about, even if you say you, you realize the electricity is confined to that line or to that truck, and again, I don't know, Brenda, could it, the person also still carry a charge that you're trying to help, like even touching them? If they're still connected somehow to the electricity, yes. And from the road, there would have been no way for you to be able to tell that. So when 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 that happens, you know, it's the hardest thing in the world to not 
help, right? So you, you do the call, right. you do 911. But what else could happen? Maybe say you're in the home and you see something. Like I've heard people talk about how you get a piece of wood or you can try to um, drag that person with something that wouldn't conduct. What, what are other steps to take? There's actually very few things that don't conduct. The best thing to do in the home is to hit your main breaker, shut the whole power off. Then you can get to the person safely and do first aid. Um, so teaching kids early where the, the main switches are in your home, where your power box is and shutting off, how to shut off that main breaker really quickly. And then and what, then a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and then you could, then you can treat them, right? Because then there's no danger to yourself. Yeah, like I remember when I was a kid, I um, we had the, I don't remember what the deal was, but if we plugged the toaster into the outlet on our stove and then touched the toaster, for some it was like it was an old toaster and it zapped me, it shot me across the room. I wasn't seriously hurt or anything, but still it was a shock both figuratively and literally. So, um, are there ways if if I never would have known that like what happened had my parents not explained what happened to me? So, are there ways to figure out if you've got something in your, your home that could be I mean, causing a problem or could potentially be a problem with that kind of thing? Most of the outlets I believe today are like, um, they'll pop, like they'll, they'll um, try to think of the word. Um, they'll cut the power off before that happens. And most in the, most of the newer homes, um, the older homes, of course, you would still have that problem. But um, most appliances today are are certified in Canada, so they shouldn't do that. Uh, now, if you have grandma's toaster still, you might still have a problem. Yeah, the ground fault, uh, the ground fault switches are obviously uh, very critical in, in kitchens in particular. So overall, Brenda, in terms of Manitobans signing up for first aid training, we're seeing this as a really is a necessity in some jobs, including obviously as a, as a lifeguard and the city has seen shortages of lifeguards, but not only do you need your lifeguard training, but you need first aid training as well. What other jobs make it mandatory for you to have that first aid training? Construction, industry, most jobs now require uh, people trained in first aid. Um, so right from your, your box stores to, to the construction site, we're seeing more and more people from all different industries come in uh, to take first aid training. And there's still uh, a healthy interest just for people to take it for their own interest. We've seen numbers increase over the last few years at a steadled, at a steady rate. Why do you think that might be? You know, I, I get that industry would be evolving, right? And so on the workspaces, we'd be saying, you know what? It would just be good if we had more of this. But with just the general public, you know, like people like me saying, I'd like to get that done. Any reason why you think they might be having that desire to get that first aid training? We get a lot of new parents in. Um, just awareness of first aid training and how it can make a difference. And it's not just treating the injury afterwards. It's preventing the injury from, from happening in the first place. Just being aware of your surroundings. Um, like when we bring a new child home from the hospital, we all of a sudden we're looking all over our house what can hurt uh, our kids. And, you know, in first aid training, we talk about prevention of that as well. So, But I do, I just think it's, people are more aware of first aid training is available. And it's fairly easy to get. And I guess, too, it would be handy as well, like just to, in case you hurt yourself, 
And uh, yeah. you know, you, because you, I mean, you can. I, I bashed my toe a couple of weeks ago, and the, the and I and I, I still don't really know what happened. I didn't require first aid, but let's say the injury was a little bit more serious. Uh, if I had that training, maybe instead of panicking about it, I might be able to sort of just calm down and say, okay, I know what I need to do right now. Right, and it's to equip people with that knowledge. One of the worst feelings we can feel, I think, is helplessness. So being able to to react in some positive way um, helps a person, but it also helps us as well. Brenda Preston, Director of Learning at St. John Ambulance here in Manitoba. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this. Thank you. And Loren, thank you for sharing your story. That's quite the... Quite the thing to just happen across as you're just making your way through your day. Yeah, and you know, you, there's also other things to consider about just knowing where you are. And, you know, you have to give an address out to somebody and like you're on a highway and you're I'm like in my south or my, all those little things. That I'm not saying you should be prepared at all times to, to respond in that way. But I've just had a lot of thought about it in the last 48 hours because, A, first of all, I've checked with multiple people and this person is, hope, you know, hoping to recover. Good. There will be other issues, but... But but also, I think that the, the, that all of us have some little thing that you might have seen in life and you think, could I have done that better? Like, what do I learn from that? Yeah, it's just keeping your wits about you is probably the biggest the biggest thing that you need to do in a, in a situation like that. And uh, big hugs uh, to you, Loren. Environment Canada is predicting most of the country will see higher than normal temperatures as we head into July. And considering the heat we've already seen for much of May and June, I don't think the news from Environment Canada comes as any surprise. Although yesterday, at least, I thought we would finally see some storms with all that heat. It felt as though conditions were just right for thunderstorms, Loren, lo and behold didn't really materialize. Yeah, there was predictions that there would be some, and I think meteorologists felt like we might see storms yesterday in and around Winnipeg, and there were some in other parts. And storm chasers, of course, I know, were gathering in different areas, and our next guest kind of falls into both categories. We're joined by Scott Kaler, President and Chief Scientist of WeatherLogix. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. I know you were out looking at storms this week uh, one night. What gets you out there? Why Would you call yourself a storm chaser? Well, I do storm chase as a hobby. I wouldn't really call myself a storm chaser in the, the sense of what you see these days. There are lots of chasers that actually do this as a career now, and for me it's just something I'll do when uh, I have time and something happens close to home. So it's not really my label. I call myself a meteorologist, but you will find me out there from time to time. So some people then might assume it's it's just about the thrill of storm chasing. But what is the science behind it? Like, what can people like you with the right background and training learn from chasing these storms? Well, actually, storm chasers fill a very important role because we're the ones that are out there first when these storms develop. And a lot of the weather warnings that are issued, particularly the tornado warnings or warnings that indicate things like large hail come from reports that the storm chasers have made. And so for a meteorologist like myself, we really value the reports that these storm chasers make. And for the people that issue the warnings, uh, they also really value that information. If you're a meteorologist, you can also learn a lot about the behavior of storms from being out there and watching them. So there's a number of, of good things that happen from people that chase storms. Just got a text message here uh, from one of our listeners. Golf ball-sized hail in St. Laurent last night around 1 a.m. So, Scott, as as Loren mentioned, 
I really thought we were going to get a storm last night. It felt like all the key ingredients were there for us to, to get a storm in Winnipeg. And obviously some places did. Why didn't we see a, a, a big series of, of storms in our neck of the woods last night? Well, in Winnipeg, ironically, it was actually too warm for storms. What happened was the atmosphere had temperatures that were so hot that air from the surface was not able to rise into the large clouds that would end up producing storms. Whereas just to the north and off to the west, the atmosphere was a little bit cooler, and that allowed those storms to form in those areas. So it could actually be too hot for storms sometimes, and that was the case yesterday. Because there was that cold front, so to speak, right? Where that what has to happen, the ingredient, if I have it right, it has to be hot, but then you have to have it clash. That's right. So yesterday we had a cold front, which was located just to the west of Winnipeg, and all of that hot, humid air interacted with that cold front just uh, off to the north of the city, around Lake Winnipeg, and then later in the day, farther to the west. And so in those areas, as the hot, humid air went over top the cold front, it was able to form storms in those areas. But in Winnipeg, it was just a little bit actually too close to the front in this case and too warm to get any storms going. So, Scott, we know it was record-breaking heat for May. June hasn't been all that much different. What's going on? Well, so far this year, what we've seen is what we call an upper-level ridge of high pressure that sat over Manitoba for a number of days at a time. Both we saw that early in June, and we've seen that again lately. And an upper ridge of high pressure is when the jet stream is deflected well off to the north. That allows a lot of warm air to come up from the south and to sit over our area. And because of this jet stream pattern, it's been very stable, and so it hasn't moved very quickly. And because of that, the pattern has really just stalled out over our area for extended periods of time. As we move later into the summer, unfortunately, the forecast, as you mentioned, probably uh, suggests that that's going to be a recurring theme. So don't expect us to... uh, cool off anytime soon. Scott, a lot of us like to take our vacations out west if we've got friends or family, say in Alberta, BC. They had snow in Jasper on Monday, a lot of it, and I think it was 7, 8, 9, 10 degrees for the better part of the day in Calgary yesterday. Is that something that they can expect further west? Is If this continues here, does that mean they're going to see cooler, wetter weather to our west in Alberta, in BC? Well, as far as Alberta goes, I like to use the saying that in Alberta, winter is never over. It's just paused. And that's because they have a higher elevation, which allows them to see snowfall later into the year than most other parts of the country. And the same could be said for BC, although... Uh, that would tend to be more in the mountains there. I don't expect that they're going to see a lot more snow as we move later into the summer. This is kind. Of, this is probably the last gasp of winter for them. But Alberta is typically a cooler summer uh, province than most of the prairies because of the higher elevation. So um, because of that, I think you know, their summer will be a bit cooler overall. And, and they've seen a wetter June as well. But I think as we get into July, that will begin to change. And they'll probably move into a, a hotter pattern as well. 
Looking at, before we let you go, Scott, just looking at the radar, uh, some looks like something wicked this way comes from the south towards southern Manitoba. Just curious to know, like, how reliable is radar in terms of predicting the storm path? Like, say, one of us is maybe golfing later this morning and the other later this afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that people need to remember about weather radar is that it's a physical instrument. So the weather radar that we see in Winnipeg is located near Woodlands, which is just northwest of the city a weather radar only knows what's happening right now and what's happened in the past but some weather apps that you'll look at will show you what's going to happen in the future perhaps hours from now but all it's doing is it's just taking the current radar image which was actually measured and just assuming that's going to continue indefinitely into the future we know that weather changes quickly over time particularly thunderstorms so the weather radar uh, layers that you see that show the future are generally not that accurate, especially when it comes to thunderstorms. But if you loop the image and look at what's already happened, let's say over the past hour, you can get a rough idea of where that stuff is headed and the chance that it might hit you. But bear in mind, there's also a good chance that more storms could develop or those storms will change before they actually reach your location. Scott Kaler, President and Chief Scientist of WeatherLogix, thank you so much for the time and insight. We appreciate it, sir. You're welcome. Anytime. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, just a quick reminder. We have bomber tickets to give away for tomorrow night's game against BC, and we're asking you, what sort of wacky game or fun game would you like to try, inspired by the monster coming to IG Field? The Bombers announced yesterday the world's largest inflatable obstacle course is coming to IG Field August 4th to 7th. Richard Joyal says, I would absolutely kill to go to the 80,000-foot super go-kart track in New York, believes it's called Grand Prix. Uh, I know there are two levels of go-kart track, and it looks like it's absolutely out of a video game. And apparently that's a good area good because New Jersey has one called Supercharged, and it's the same thing. It looks like a Super Mario Kart track where you go up and down and up and down and... Yeah. yeah, fun. Yeah, Sign me I'll up. take that. Well, that's the thing. Most of those rides that you do, you want them. You're usually like, this needs to be longer or bigger, right? And then you finally find the place, and you think, there you are. I, I found know you, you existed after all these years. I think Niagara Falls has that Mario Kart one as well. So, oh, cool. Yeah, go kart stuff is 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 pretty cool stuff. Still got to get out to Speed World here in Winnipeg. That sounds like a blast. So keep telling us about your favorite or your the games you'd like to try or perhaps have tried the fun wacky zany games for a chance to win bomber tickets we'll pick a winner at 9:15 and in our next segment we're going to tell you our latest let's talk turkey winner but right now all across the country communities are finding ways to celebrate National Indigenous Peoples Day yeah so in Ottawa there's the summer solstice indigenous festival because these days really interconnect and then in Vancouver the city is closing down a section of Main Street for music dancing and food here in Winnipeg there are several different events taking place there's one at the University of Manitoba at Ganaganichek and at the Forks there's all sorts of activities sacred teachings, uh, then there's face painting for the kids of powwow and Morgreg. Yeah, lots of opportunities to get involved, lots happening, and a lot to consider. For more, we're joined by Damon Johnson, president of Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg. Damon, good morning, great to connect with you again. Yes, and thank you for reaching out to me. Well, it's like I said, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Your, your positivity uh, just sort of emanates wherever you go, but you know, it's a simple question, but we want to start with, what does this day mean to you? 
Well, a, a number of different things. As you, I'm getting older now, and uh, so I look back, uh, you know, in my lifetime, and, and particularly I, I like to pay attention to what's happen, happening, happened and happening in our country, and particularly what are the positive changes that are occurring that I think are better for all Canadians. Can you get into that, Damon? Because I, I'm curious if you know when, when you first started uh, maybe celebrating this day or when Canadians started maybe even just recognizing this day better, there might maybe has been a shift in the years because we've all, we're also learning more. I'd like to think hopefully learning more and understanding more and in that awareness uh, that comes so many things. So when you say the positives, what are some of them? Well, I think, you know, the, the uh, adoption by Canada of uh, huge, huge effort, I think, around truth and reconciliation. And then, uh, you know, we now have the uh, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples legislation. I think those are two powerful new doors that have opened for all of us that in time, I am very hopeful, will lead to, uh, you know, a measurable improvement in, in our relationships with each other. And, you know, I've always, I've worked with other Canadians all my life. And, and yeah, I mean, I've encounters uh, discrimination at times, but by and large, you know, if you have a positive attitude to others, if you open the door to, uh, you know, good change, uh, you know, many people respond in, in a good way. So I think that, you know, these new doors are really, for me, quite incredible because, you know, I when I was young and I look back, there was... Uh, you know, there was hardly anything for Indigenous people. I mean, we, there was the Indian Act. And, of course, I think most Canadians or hope most Canadians would realize that, you know, that legislation was designed to control us. It didn't enable us to become uh, stronger persons, to, to be healthier, all those, those good things. So, Damon, how are you acknowledging this day? Well, today I'm, I'm very pleased because... It's uh, we're having our uh, annual graduation at the Neganin Center uh, from our adult education center and our Neganin College, and it's one of my favorite events every year. And uh, you know, it just feels so good to be able to emcee the uh, event and to see these students who have worked so hard to to graduate. You know what I mean? And then you know they're going to go on back to university or they're going to take training with uh, with the college or they may go to Red River. So it just, you know, and I know from my own experience, you know, education, I wouldn't be speaking to you today like this if I hadn't gone back to school uh, in uh, 1970. Talk about, what was, it, were there challenges, Damon, in terms of getting that education and, and you know, becoming more highly educated, I'm just guessing, than uh, maybe your friends and, and your family? What were the obstacles there, if, if there were any? And I apologize for making assumptions if, they're, if I'm going down the wrong path here. Oh, no, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head because when I look back when I was young, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was a very shy person. Uh, you know, intimidated by, you know, many things. Uh, and, you know, with, with many Indigenous people in, 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 in our history, uh, you know, we, we, you know, at school, like, for, for example, I grew up in a place called Kekebeka Falls, which is outside of Thunder Bay, Ontario. And it was a small town, and we were the only Indigenous family in that small town. And then when I started going to school, it was a small two-room elementary school. And, uh, 
you know, on the playground, uh, you know, some of the students, uh, you know, the discrimination, the race was, was overt. And sometimes you, you got into scraps, you know what I mean? And, but, you know, that experience changed uh, as I moved further along and got up to the grade six, seven, eight. And uh, by that time, most of us had become good friends. And so I uh, think, you know, you know, some of that relates to the fact that, and I mentioned the Indian, that it was, it was segregation. When you keep people apart by law, you know, we were on reserves. Everybody was off reserve. It was very difficult to develop relationships with other Canadians. So, you know, we need to, I think, better appreciate uh, you know, some of the darker history of Canada and its relationship with Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. And then, uh, you know, under Truth and Reconciliation and UNDRIP, uh, work hard to improve relationships, to address, you know, some of the serious issues we're facing, uh, even in the city, like with homelessness. I'm sure you, you notice uh, it appears to be continuing to grow. But the good news is the province has announced uh, a major strategy I think there's going to be a summit uh, bringing together business, community, governments, and hopefully unions, uh, maybe this fall. And uh, we can, you know, these bigger issues are for all a challenge for all of us. And no, no one group or person has all the answers. But I think we need to come together and create the space where we can build some consensus on better ways to address these critical issues. Damon Johnson joining us live on 680 CJOB, President of the Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg. Thank you so much, sir. We appreciate the time. Yes, and thank you, and take care, and I hope you enjoy the day. Then a reminder, at 204-780-6868 for a chance to win tickets for tomorrow night's Bomber game. We're asking you about, like, wacky zany games you'd like to try inspired by the monster the inflate the world's largest inflatable obstacle course coming to winnipeg at ig field this august for example Kristen, with an example of one that she has tried says last year we played live action battleship for our summer celebration so your players are the ships and they sit on opposite sides of a barrier uh, badminton net with a tarp works great, says Kristen. And you're supposed to use water balloons, but those weren't very green. Oh, so we used big wet sponges, and it worked great. Five stars, definitely recommend. You sunk my battleship. <laughs> so I guess there we talk about the instinct. Your instinct, if you see a water balloon flying over the net, coming your way, your you're instinct. Not catching it, are you? Well, I'm guessing you're supposed to just let it hit you. But your instinct would be to try to block it, at the very least catch it. So you just got to take it, I guess. Which is why the water balloons work excellent. Yeah. Right? Because if it doesn't matter what you do, if they're throwing at you hard enough, they are going to break. I like this taking of games that are board games and turning them into adult size. My oldest did a thing where they played human foosball. And they were in some sort of contraption that has them, like, connected and it was just like foosball, but you could only go back and forth so many steps, and then you'd kick the ball, and you'd have to play in this way. And I thought, that kind of sounds fun. <laughs> Aggravating, annoying, maybe, but it seems fun. <laughs> quite. Can't quite be You know, the same way when you're playing the game, you're like, come on, God, get in there. Get, you can get it. <laughs> 
I know. I'm terrible at that game. Just do not have the coordination to match. Okay, I got to spin this one this way and spin that one while I'm pulling. Uh, yeah, I awful. I was always impressed by anybody that was really good at foosball and some of the tricks that you could learn how to do. But if I'm not mistaken, it's against the rules to spin it all the way around, yeah. right? Whose like, rules? Like, well, but like, that's all I do. I just math hammer each one. Spin, 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 move, shuffle. It's not Price is Right. This is not the giant wheel. This is this is foosball, and there are there are rules associated. Loren, come on now. So we'll pick a winner at nine fifteen. But we just wanted to share this because you know this is a story out of Edmonton. But it's as I was listening to it, I thought this sounds like pretty similar to a lot of discussions we've had on this radio station uh, because the city of Edmonton is updating how it develops neighborhoods. But for some residents, it's cause for concern because they worry that plans to make it easier to build infill housing or small apartments could take away the charm in established communities. Global Sarah Comadina explains. Tuesday, more than 70 speakers went to City Hall to voice their thoughts on the city's plan to create a denser Edmonton. The city created a renewed zoning bylaw. Rolling out this sort of bylaw on a citywide basis without an incremental plan will likely lead to inflated land values, particularly in market desirable neighborhoods. It's a bit disingenuous for what, uh, what um, administration is saying. Beyond that, the new definition of residential zone is very different than what people understand it to be now. The goal is to make it easier for developers to create infill housing and small apartment buildings. Kevin Taft says the public wasn't consulted enough despite ongoing conversations since 2018. City's public engagement has failed. Um, I think they've been working in an echo chamber where they're talking to their own supporters. What is being proposed with the zoning bylaw renewal is uh, a slight increase in density across the board. Councillor Ashley Salvador says the bylaw will help meet the city's future goals and reduce red tape. She stresses the current zoning is restrictive. We want to have a city that is more environmentally sustainable, fiscally sustainable. We want to build walkable communities where people have housing choice. Uh, and we need the right tools to do that. David Barry says since more infill housing came to his Westmount community, it's led to more vibrancy. None of our storefronts really stayed empty for too long. All those things are because there's more people around. And I mean, it's not towers. It's not huge apartment complexes. It's two houses where there was one. The conversation is far from over. A public hearing will be held in October in front of City Council. The city hopes to have the zoning renewal approved for January. Sarah Comedina, Global News. Some of the most vibrant neighborhoods I've ever visited, in particular in Vancouver, are areas like Kitsilano off Granville Street, where there are single family homes, but you can almost guarantee half or more of those homes have basement suites in them. And for a long time, that was just, they would call the mortgage helper. It would help you pay your mortgage. Well, now it's an integral part of the neighborhood is to have not only basement suites, carriage houses, which are garages with suites above them, or even lane houses where you build these small suites independent of the single family dwelling on the property but they're, say, at the back lane, at the back of the property. And these are becoming not only popular, but critical in terms of addressing this housing shortage. Because not everybody can afford to buy a $700,000, 400-square-foot condo 
in downtown Vancouver or elsewhere in these major cities across Canada, including Edmonton. Edmonton's a big city, so it'll be interesting to see how much of this ends up coming to life in Winnipeg in terms of increased density. And I know a lot of people don't like these infill houses. They're tall and skinny and they don't fit in with the character. I think they're going to be a fact of life. Even in smaller bedroom communities now, you see them in, in on different streets and there's also just more condos in some of those spots. Side because by the, sides? the point is that people are still looking for the house in a space that they can afford. And so they're, you have to get creative with that. And I guess, you know, there's that whole not my backyard thing going on. And then on the other hand, you're also probably someone who says, we need to do something to create more affordable housing. So just not on my street. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We are asking you this morning, what's a like a wacky, zany, fun, crazy game you'd like to play? Like the the monster, the monster coming to IG Field. It's the world's largest inflatable obstacle course, and it looks like ridiculous fun. Uh, so that got us asking you, what would you like to try or what have you tried? Richard J., for example, he asks the question, is it too simple that I just missed the giant chess that used to be in Polo Park. Richard says, did they not have a giant chess set in Polo Park? I remember for sure Garden City had one. I want to say yes to Polo Park as well. Yeah. I won't like, I won't state my reputation on it, but I want to say yes. It Every- won't surprise you that the best place on earth, Clear Lake, has a giant chess set. Do they? I don't know if it's giant, but it's chess and there's checkers. Well, uh, Just I, north of the other greatest place on earth, Mendoza. It's fun to watch. I remember watching, <laughs> I, I stopped to watch some guys playing at Garden City, Garden City and it was, you know, so they were both standing there looking at these pieces and the pieces were like up to their knee maybe mm-hmm. and they're just standing there and then once one of them went to move, it was like a ballet because he put he he okay I I'm gonna move this piece here and then the guy takes that piece and they 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 each had two pieces in their hand at all times because once the wheels got went in motion they both knew what the other was going to do it was crazy chess giant chess yes Richard it's exciting that would be a fun backyard game oh yeah just oh, yeah. sit around it with lawn chairs heckling them like oh you idiot yeah it is it it's it, it's exciting to watch if you've never seen the Queen's Gambit. They somehow made chess one of the most exciting shows I've ever watched. Uh, Evan also pointed, here's another runner-up, adult-sized hungry hippos at Uptown Lanes. I was just there a couple weeks ago. That place is so huge, I didn't even see this. I I didn't know that was a thing either. I'm curious to know how it actually gets played. But our winner today, if you missed this early, we read this a couple hours ago, but we're going with Chris. What does Chris have for us? Chris says, a friend of mine was hosting a candidate party last summer, and he actually set up a bunch of large tarps, garden hoses, and in the middle, there was a zero-turn lawnmower with custom brackets to pull a water ski-type rope to spin and pull us behind, sit on tubes, or get on our butts in circles after a couple of turns. We had to down, had it down packed it was funny wiping out or sliding out onto the grass and turning all green that was a wild time and chris subsequently said i forgot to add that the deck and the cutting blades were removed was it a kubota that's what i'll well, that's what i want to know <laughs> well i had said it was a recipe for disaster and so chris obviously felt that he had to update with we didn't have the blades in okay. but even remember the banana slide did you ever do that with the wet tarp on the hill sure you'd get just ripped with those hooks that you had to put in the ground to hold it into place like everything 
you know, at a point, it's dangerous. <laughs> so, Chris, congratulations. You're going to the Bomber game tomorrow night against the BC Lions. Hey, sometimes you just never know where our conversations and planned topics of discussions will take us. In honor of the world's largest inflatable obstacle course, the Monster, coming to IG Field in August, we are asking you, like, what's a wacky, fun, goofy activity or game you'd like to try or have tried? So in our discussions amongst ourselves and with you, your text messages, inevitably the game show Wipeout came up. And so did the name of our next guest. My name's Troy Westwood. I think I'm a perfect fit for Wipeout Canada. There's all kinds of reasons. Um, I like to have fun, uh, energetic. Uh, I used to be a football player. Well, kicker. Try to get him outside the pocket, give him the run pass option. The fake and the toss to Westwood. Will he score? Yes! Troy Westwood joins us now, and Troy, thank you for joining us on such short notice. We really appreciate it, and your self-deprecation. <laughs> yeah, always a pleasure, my friend, and great chatting with you guys. So what on earth made you decide to volunteer to subject yourself to Wipeout? Well, it was actually, I was um, doing the morning show at QX104 at that time, and it was uh, kind of a promo idea that was brainstormed up at a meeting. Um, and that's, that's kind of what gave birth to it. And just a couple of those videos and a bit of a process. And next thing you know, I was on a plane to Argentina. So what was it like? It was horrible. I I, I hated the experience. Like it was, it's nothing the way they show it on TV. Um, it's, um, a lot of the stuff is sort of staged and such. I I don't like they, at the end of it all, we had to sign uh, just this massive contract of non-disclosure. I'm not sure how long it lasts. I don't have it handy, so I don't know if that time has passed. It's, it's got to be dug on 15, 20-ish years uh, by this time here. But, um, yeah, I, I hated the experience. It was uh, just absolutely horrible. I didn't see that answer coming, i got to be honest with you. Uh, you know, and as we said, let's reach out to Troy to talk about Wipeout. We also, you know, we're recognizing that today is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and, and you were one of the, I think, founding members, Troy, of Eagle and Hawk with Vince Fontaine, a First Nations rock group here in Winnipeg. And you have all sorts of connections to the community. I'm just curious what this day means to you. Yeah, well, gee whiz. And the celebration of it is uh, the one day makes it that much more special. But if, you know, and like for someone who loves the community and, and uh, was traditionally adopted by Dave and Oriana Crescene of the Sagging First Nation, who have both now passed, um, it, it's it's an every second of every day sort of a thing for me and my family. But it's it's always so much fun just to see the events um, being held and, and the joy that it brings to the um, First Nation communities and, and the way that it also exposes, exposure, uh, brings exposure to how beautiful the culture is and, and a bunch of other things. It's a, it's a great day. You say sort of adopted into the community, Troy. Could you explain that a little bit more? Because as I understand it, uh, you're non-Indigenous, but you really connect with so many of the teachings of Anishinaabe people. Yeah, I was traditionally adopted. So it's not legally adopted into the family, but it's um, traditionally through their culture um, brought into their family um, and that sort of thing. So I had, you know, mom and dad were Dave and Oriana and my brothers and sisters and cousins and nieces and nephews and the long list and 
just have been involved in their traditional teachings and understandings and the community right across Manitoba and even Canada was just so warm to, you know, initially as a young adult sort of getting um, immersed in the culture and taking part of things like uh, all the different cultural types of things like uh, being a sun dancer, um, sweat lodges, things of that nature. And then of course with the music with Vince and Eagle and Hawk and later as a solo artist at Little Hawk, uh, so much love and support in the community and, my wife is Métis, uh, so you know we we're firmly entrenched in in everything to do with um, understandings and spirituality from a First Nations perspective. Troy, talk about growing up a little bit and the idea of you know coming to grips with your own spirituality or where you fit on the planet. I know I struggled with that a little bit myself, just because I was. <laughs> I was a minority really to a great extent in my, in my elementary school, moved to Brandon uh, where that wasn't nearly uh, the case and then came back. And in my high school, it was, you know, uh, the white kids weren't uh, necessarily in the majority at my high school. So just talk about fitting in and, and learning about other cultures and really identifying and, and connecting uh, with, with the, with the culture you associate yourself with now. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, when I like I grew up in a, a non-Christian home. Um there was no religious uh, affiliation for me as a young kid for sure my dad sort of leading the charge with that but um definitely spiritual and 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 open and understanding of of all things around us in the world and then had some uh close dear friends as a youngster who were First Nation uh fellow named Peter Bousquet would be one of those individuals who influenced me and and I what I've I just have always um, connected more so with the sort of interpretation and in the world around us, uh, ultimately from in a similar manner as to what I've learned to be uh, spirituality, whether it's Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, or, or in in a larger scale of First Nations people, it just made sense to me. So it, that's kind of what continued me sort of leaning that way. And and then I also went to college in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Right, so there's a some of the things indigenous uh, down there are pretty profound. And the school that I went to was a Lutheran college. I was the only non-Christian at that college campus. So it was a liberal arts school. I was Canadian, the only Canadian, the only non-Christian. <laughs> it was interesting, right? We'd have, I, you know, as a uh, an an arts school, Bachelor of Arts, we had to take two religion classes. Um, during our studies, I can't remember if it was per year or during our studies, but it was me versus a hundred plus in, in, in these classes and that sort of thing. And my college roommate, we'd stay up till midnight debating spiritual understandings. He went on to go get his doctorate in theology and ultimately became a, um, a professor at Augustana where I went to school. And I swear it was because of our debates and that sort of thing. And he said, the professor still talked about me. They would still bring me up in class because who who is a non-Christian goes to a Lutheran school. So just all of that. And then coming back, you know, to my home in Winnipeg with the bombers after that. And, and the number of doors and the warm hearts and things of that nature that uh, were presented to me because of my affiliation with the bombers and traveling to so many of the different uh, uh, first nations in the province and, and around uh, Canada and that sort of thing. And then that furthering, um, it's entrenchment with music and all that sort of stuff. It was just, it's a, it's been truly a remarkably beautiful journey. I was lucky enough to go uh, north with uh, Drew Walatarski and Nick Dembski and a couple folks from the Blue Bombers organization just a few weeks ago, Troy. And 
the warmth, the the welcome that uh, Nick in particular received uh, at Oxford House was overwhelming. You must have, you know, you touched on, you must have experienced that yourself in terms of sort of the, the homegrown hero, right? It was amazing, man. And it just... Uh, quite remarkable that you bring that up, my friend, because just yesterday we have two Mastiff Cane Corsos, and I, I take them for bike rides every night. And I, uh, a fellow was walking with his two young sons, and um, it was obvious to me that they were First Nation. And then I just stopped to look across both ways on the street sort of thing, and he said, Troy? And I said, yeah. And he, he was from Nelson House and said that I, I'd been up there a number of times and stuff, and he had talked to We started talking about music at the Bombers and and when the bombers would go up, we went on a bunch of tours. The RCMP would uh, fly us to all these different reserves, and our, as a hockey team, we'd go play and visit communities, and it was so much fun. Like, the boys had a lot of fun doing it, and then also it was just such a beautiful thing to go in and, and connect with the different communities and, and, and the people up there. It was one of my favorite parts of being a bomber. Troy, before we let you go, I'm just curious. I mean, it sounds like you've had uh, wonderful, positive experiences. Wondering if there's ever been anything negative, like anybody referring to you as, I don't know, a poser or fake or pretend uh, in this context? I had one conversation with another artist when um, I was nominated for a Juno of, in the First Nation category uh, for as an as a uh, as an um, solo artist. And the way that those things would work is that I would supply letters saying that I've been traditionally adopted and they would accept those sorts of things. So um, the way that it worked is that my album was nominated for Juno and there was a local artist who I liked and had great respect for who thought it was wrong for me to go forward with that. Um, and the thing about my music is that I would have all kinds of folks um, that would approach me and ask me to write songs about things that happened in the community and um, my family was very much so involved uh, as far as the crescendo and saying of being a part of it and the recording process and all that sort of stuff and Vince and stuff as well. And so we just had a very um, point blank sort of co- communication or a conversation about it. And I certainly listened to him and he's still, I still follow him and he's doing really well as an artist and stuff like that. And I understood the point that he was making uh, but for me, I was representing, and I think for a lot of people in my circle sort of thing, um, like I, you know, there was just a larger thing being represented uh, for the music. And I think uh, even if people were um, in any way whatsoever offended at my sort of representing whatever it is in their perception that I represented, um, I would just ask uh, what they thought the music did and the songs did to the communities and stuff like that during that time. But that was the only one time uh, that anyone has ever said anything uh, outside of loving and caring, like every single uh, transaction and and meeting and all the different communities and people and, and celebrations or ceremonies, things of that nature. That was the only one. And it wasn't negative. It was just sort of a back and forth to come to a better understanding, I think, of each other and where each individual stood. But there was, I, I would say, like literally tens of thousands of remarkable, positive, beautiful interactions and shared experiences uh, during the journey. 
Uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing all this with us. I had no idea our discussion would go this way this morning, Trey. Uh, thank you for, for joining us and sharing this with us out loud. It, it means a lot. Oh, my pleasure. And anytime you want to get more into the wipeout experience, you just let me know. <laughs> but have fun on that massive inflatable. I checked it out, and it looks like a bunch of fun. The Bombers continue to do a great job creating all kinds of fun on game day. Troy Westwood, thank you, friend.